take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 14 down through verse number 18, and title of the message tonight is Growing in Grace, Growing in Grace. I've always loved this exhortation that uh, Peter gives at the end of this book, and there's a lot that we can glean from it, and um, I think it's a great challenge to us in our Christian life. So let's read it together, and then we'll uh, bring out a few things that I think would be beneficial for us as Christians. Notice he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. When we think about our Christian life, it is a journey of growth. And so we ask ourselves, are we a growing Christian? See, growing is part of the Christian life and experience. Our Christian life is likened to physical life in many ways by way of illustration Uh, We think about physically, after a baby is born, he or she continues to grow, all right? And to grow, they have to be fed and nurtured and cared for. And as time goes on, that little infant turns into a, a, a toddler, and they get faster and stronger, and they learn to talk, and they get louder and do all sorts of things. Uh, those of us who have children, we understand and we identify with what that means and uh, seeing that happen at Seems like yesterday we just brought Spurgeon home from the hospital, you know, as a helpless little infant and totally dependent upon us uh, for everything. He couldn't walk or talk or do any of those things just yet, but uh, little by little he learned to crawl, and now he crawls like a machine. He's all over the house, and uh, just a couple days ago I looked over and saw that he had crawled up on top of a container, and then from that reached to a whole other level and crawled on top of a shelf. And, uh, you know, he looked at me with that mischievous little smile. I was like, look what I did. Uh, you know, he, he thought he was big stuff. And uh, he's hard to keep up with. But that's what babies do. They turn into toddlers and then into children and then into teenagers, into adults. So that's growth. And uh, there's an application for that, of that spiritually to us. When you were saved, you were born into the family of God. Jesus said, no man can... Uh, coming to the kingdom of God unless he's born again. He can't see the kingdom of God. So being born again means that the day of your conversion, you were born spiritually, which means you spiritually were an infant. You were spiritually were a child. And so like that of a physical baby, we all start out our Christian life as spiritual babies in need of nourishment, in need of growth uh, that uh, is suitable for us at that stage in our life. But is the Christian life supposed to stay in the baby stage? No, it's not, right? We're meant to grow, just like our physical bodies grow. But the believer, understand that as a believer, you also can stunt your growth. 
You cannot grow as you ought to grow in your spiritual life. Spiritually speaking, many believers have not left their infancy because they've not been feeding on the Word of God. They've not been uh, in church. They've not been obedient to the Lord. Some have not entered into spiritual adulthood. Now, here's something I think it's good for us to understand. Did you know that your spiritual growth is not determined by your physical age? Your spiritual growth is not determined by your physical age. If you've just been saved and you're 70 years old, you're a baby Christian. Your age doesn't have anything to do with that physically. Did you also know that the number of years you've been saved does not mean you're a grown-up Christian? You may have been saved for 70 years, but have not truly grown and matured in your Christian life. I think that that is probably one of the greatest problems in churches today is that there's been a lack of spiritual growth. And a lot of that comes down to a lack of spiritual nourishment from the pulpit and in the Christian life, just reading and growing in the Word of God and in prayer. But the principle of growth of the Christian life, it's essential. And that's why Peter tells his Christians here, he tells them to grow in grace. As a command, grow in grace. And this is what we all ought to be doing with our Christian life. Peter is telling them this in light of what he just said previously. He told them about the coming day of the Lord and judgment that was to come. And because of this truth, the believer is to live in a holy manner. He's to uh, live blamelessly. Uh, He has a current responsibility to continue growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ so that he'll be steadfast, faithful through his Christian life. So this is an important thing I want us to focus on. And just three points here tonight. I want to give you three headings as we see in this text. Number one is this, is the necessity for spiritual growth. It's a necessity. It's not something that we can just get by without. It's something that we actually need. And why is it that we need it? Well, Peter gives us a couple reasons why we need it in this text. And the first one is this, is that we grow to have scriptural discernment. Scriptural or spiritual discernment in our Christian life. Now, when you come to verse 15, notice that Peter reminds them to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, he's actually referencing back to verse 9. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, That tells us the reason the Lord is patient, that He's long-suffering. It's because He's still saving His people. He does not mean that every soul in the world is going to be saved. You understand the context of this passage. Who is Peter saying He's patient towards? He says towards you. Well, who's He talking to? He's talking to the saints. He's talking to His own people. Often this verse is ripped out of its context to try and support a a universal salvation of every individual who lives. That's not the case. If God was trying to be patient on every person who ever lives to come to repentance, that would, would never come to an end, right? So that's not the context. That's not what he's saying. He's patient towards his people, who he's not willing that any should perish. So here's one, one confident thing we can glean from this, is that God... Uh, The final judgment is not going to come until the very last of God's people has brought to himself. So you can rest assured of that. And that's why we consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. God's patience leads to the salvation of all his people whom he will save. Jesus Jesus paid it all and he's going to get all he paid for. There's not one of God's who's not going to get saved. 
But he goes on to remind them also, as the apostle of the apostle Paul had said some of these same truths regarding the need to be holy and live in a manner that's reflective of Christ. Look at what verse 14 says. He says, Beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. See, not only does the patience of the Lord present further time so that he will save his people, but it also guarantees time for his people to be sanctified as you and I who continue to live in this present age. This is part of Christian growth, being sanctified, cultivated in holiness and Christ-likeness. Uh, this is what we find. Now, now he's, he, he references Paul through this text. Did Paul urge of this same truth? Absolutely he did. He urged of our sanctification and being holy and blameless. Romans 6, 1 through 2, he says to that church, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, see Paul urged this need for sanctification, and, and, and this is part of growth in the Christian life. But what we find through Peter here, what he's warning of, false teachers were distorting Paul's teaching uh, about Christian liberty as a license to sin, as a license to continue in sin and therefore not be holy and blameless in their Christian life. See, the Apostle Paul wrote to these same readers at some point prior to when Peter wrote this letter, and there were false teachers that were using Paul's writings to entice them into sin to veer them off from their Christian sanctification. And what Peter shows us with this is that Paul, he was well known and read at this time by the church. At this point in history, Paul most likely was already dead, but yet his, letter, his letters were very much alive because they're inspired scripture. In fact, here in verse 16, we learn what Peter thinks of Paul's letters. What does he say here? He says of them, if you look at the very, he's, he's talking about, Paul's letters, but at the very end of this verse, he's talking about these false teachers who twist them to their own destruction. He says, as they do the other scriptures. So, so Peter right here shows his acknowledgement of what Paul had written as authoritative scripture. It wasn't just some random letters that Paul wrote, but they were actual scripture. God breathed, and, and we read the majority of our New Testament. It's letters from Paul. But notice as we come through this, Peter says that there are some things, in verse 16, some things in his letters that are hard to understand. Now, have any of you ever read anything of Paul and thought, I don't really know what he's talking about? <laughs> Something that's hard to understand. Well, you're in good company. Peter thought the same thing, all right? But that doesn't mean it's that we can't understand it. It just means that there's some things that are deeper. Paul was very deep. He was very theological, very, very rooted in, uh, in, in theology and who God was and how that played out into our life. But notice that since this is the case, Peter says, those who are ignorant and unstable, in verse 16, twist to their own destruction, talking about Paul's writings. Now, who are these ignorant and unstable people? Well, particularly, Peter is referencing the false teachers he's been talking about. If you go backwards to chapter 2 of the same, same book, look with me at verse 1 through 3 for a moment. Notice how he warns that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them 
the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's a pretty grave warning about false teachers. And these false teachers, they were twisting the Scriptures, bringing in heresies. They distort what Scripture has given us to give it a different meaning than its original intent. And some false teachers do this intentionally because they are ministers of Satan, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Some do it because they have their own carnal gain in mind. They want to use it for gain. Others do it simply out of ignorance because they really don't know the truth like they ought to know it. They want to force their own thoughts on the Scriptures. But we've got to understand this too, that misinterpreting Scripture is not just for those who are false teachers. You understand, any believer can do that. Any believer can misinterpret a text of the Bible. Just because you're saved does not mean that your interpretation of Scripture will be perfect. There's a reason that we are called to rightly divide the word of truth, comparing Scripture with Scripture and letting it reveal truth as we do that. Now, some truth is easier to discern than others. Then there are some deeper and wider doctrines that require very careful uh, exegesis or exposition, taking out of the text what is there to understand them. But the reality is anyone is susceptible to having a misinterpretation of Scripture or a doctrine, even believers. That's one reason that I think it's important for believers to always be teachable. Now, we ought to know where we ought to stand, but we always ought to understand that I am a fallible being, and I ought to be teachable when it comes to the Word of God. And that's why Peter urges in this text the need for these believers, grow in grace, because there's these others who are distorting the Scripture, there are these others that are deceiving others with the Scripture, grow in grace because they need to be steadfast in their discernment. They need to have scriptural discernment. But also in in light of this, not only are we to grow to have this scriptural discernment, we also are to grow to have a steadfast dedication. Now look at verse 17, and notice what he says here. He says in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, he's warning them, you know this beforehand, what's happening with these false teachers and misinterpreting scripture. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Is it possible for a believer to be led into error? Absolutely. Paul emphasized the need for this spiritual growth through the Ephesians. We came through this. I'm not going to expound it much, but Ephesians 4.14, he wanted them to grow into maturity. Why? So that, that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Being carried away by false teaching is easier than we realize. I had a young guy that uh, I was ministering to in Texas at the church there. He had come in looking for a place to worship, very kind, genuine guy. And um, he had a sound biblical profession of faith. Uh, the pastor at the time wasn't me. I was an associate at that time, but I was. Uh, so, but uh, he he was baptized by the pastor and became part of the church. And so I began going through some discipleship lessons with him, you know, helping him to understand the Christian faith. But little by little, I, he started talking about why it was so important for us to have works for the purpose of keeping us saved. Little by little, he started mentioning those sorts of things. I thought, where is this coming from? It wasn't coming from me. It wasn't coming from our church. And 
over time, through that discipleship teaching and training, uh, he began to get more aggressive with that teaching. And then he gave me his source. A certain YouTube teacher was teaching on how you must maintain good works to keep your salvation. Keep your salvation. So your eternal security depended upon your good works once you had professed faith in Christ. Now, we've probably all known somebody who believes along that lines, right? This guy had a sound profession of faith, of his conversion, but whether he's truly regenerated or not, it's not for me to determine. Well, one thing I do know is that this YouTube teacher led him away from what his local church teachers were teaching him. And with nowadays, with being able to gain access to so much teaching, you have to be careful of what you take in. You have to. Because there's a lot of well-meaning people that are just dead wrong, and then there's some that intentionally are trying to lead God's people astray. If one is swept away by false teaching, they can proceed further into apostasy entirely, thus showing their faithless profession to begin with. If a believer is not grounded in truth from their young stage in their Christian life, they can easily be carried off into error. That's why Peter says here, take care to yourself, not to be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Why is stability so important? That word stability, uh, also translated as steadfastness, it is a firm commitment to a conviction or belief. And that is really what defines true Christianity. You are firmly committed to the gospel of Christ, to what Scripture teaches. That's central to us. But how can you be steadfast if you're not growing? How can you be firm if you're not growing, being rooted and grounded in what truth is? You see, the more a Christian grows, the more grounded and stable they will be in their Christian life. Paul said it this way to the Colossian church. He said, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He wants them to be rooted and grounded, established in the faith, the whole body of Christian doctrine. So our aim is to be growing in truth, to be faithful to truth, and to live out the truth in our life. This is why spiritual growth is a necessity. But notice with me number two tonight, there is a responsibility of Christian growth. The responsibility of Christian growth. Notice it's very plain what Peter says here in verse 18. We are called to grow in grace. He tells them to do this. Grow in grace. That's a command. But grow in grace. Now, what's Peter mean by that command? Well, well, think about grace for a moment. What is it that made the difference in your life? It's grace. Grace is what has made the difference in your life. Why is it that you are born again into God's family? Because of grace. Why do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Because of grace. Grace is the undeserved and unearned favor of God upon His people. That's what has been bestowed upon us as believers. It is matchless and wonderful and infinite and amazing. We could sing the rest of our life about how good God's grace is. His grace alone has saved you from sin, as we read in Ephesians 2. But not only is it that grace has saved you, but understand that grace is also the means by which you mature and grow and are sanctified in your Christian life. Now, Peter is essentially 
concluding the letter with some of the same principles he opened it up with. I want you to go backwards to chapter 1 of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, and look at verse 3 through 9, because I think this really portrays out another measure that shows us Christian growth, growing in grace. Notice that he says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, notice for a moment, as you look at verse 3 and 4, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What do you and I lack to be a growing Christian? Nothing. We have everything that we need to be a growing Christian, don't we? You have both the Spirit of God in you, and you have the Scriptures of God for you to grow into the Christian you're called to be. And you'll notice that this word excellence, he he says that through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence, this word excellence was used by Greek writers to describe the sum of all desirable things character qualities. You see, this is the desired end of the Christian, to grow more into the likeness of whom? Christ. That's the desired end, is for us to be more like Christ in our life, who is the perfect example of all godly character. And so Peter, that's what he's communicating. He shows He continues showing the change that's happened in them and us. In verse 4, he says that by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, there's a lot that could be unpacked here. But he says we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now, that does not mean that we become God or part of him. But it does mean that Christians share in his nature as they increasingly become more like Christ in their growth and sanctification. This is about Christian growth. Now, I think it's a wonderful thing for us to consider that God has established the means of Christian growth, and by those means, it includes both him and his divine power, but there's also a point of application and responsibility upon us. Notice what Peter says in verse 5. He says, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith. That's direct application to us. This is the command of Christian living, command of Christian growth. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Well, what does he mean by supplement your faith? Some translations may say add to your faith or supply to your faith. The principle is Christians are not merely just to confess Christ, but are to actually live out what he taught. It's not enough just for say, oh, I am a Christian and live like the world. You evidence that you're not a true Christian if you just live like the world. But a Christian who confesses Christ 
and begins to live out these things that, that Peter says and what the Word of God says to us manifests that Christ is living in them. So you notice what he says here. He says, supplement your faith with virtue. What is virtue? Well, that word refers to an uncommon character worthy of praise. It's also translated as excellence of character, exceptional civic virtue. So it's the Christian's character. They must be morally excellent. So he says, add to your faith virtue, this, this, this moral excellence of character, just like Christ would. But then he builds upon this. Notice how all these are interconnected. He then says, add knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now, Peter's not saying that we take each of these just one at a time, but these are things that are to be cultivated in our life simultaneously. Moral excellence, self-control, all of these things. This is what growing in grace does. It changes you. It changes you in how you live and, and what you're living for. And this should be the focus of every believer here. John Stott rightly said this, Do not be content with a static Christian life. Determine rather to grow in faith and in love and in knowledge and holiness. You ought not to be content where you are in your Christian life. If you come to a place where you say, I'm content with how I am in my Christian life, you've come to a static position, a position in which you open yourself up to further error or danger. Now, notice what the result is of growing. What's the result of fulfilling what Peter says here in growing and adding these qualities and living them out? Look at verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Notice increasing, that's, that's, that signifies growth to us. And increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the Christian life meant to do? It is meant to be fruitful, not fruitless. And Peter says, as you're adding these and increasing in practicing these, you show yourself to be fruitful and effective in your Christian life. What's the opposite effect of not growing like you should? What's the opposite effect of not living out these qualities? Verse 9, he says, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Now, that could be a person who's fruitless because he never was genuinely converted. He had no true knowledge of Christ. It could also be a stagnant Christian who has fallen into serious error in their Christian life. Only God knows, right? Because we don't read the heart. Only God reads the heart. But one thing is sure. The lack of spiritual growth in a true believer results in blind, short-sighted living. You're living for yourself and not for Christ. You're living for now and not for eternity. This is why we have to grow in grace. Because the very essence and purpose of our life is Christ. It's Him. Being more like Him, knowing Him. And that brings us to this second aspect of our responsibility of growth. Not only are we called to grow in grace, this is what grace has done in us, we're also called to grow in knowledge. Knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says in verse 18. Notice. He says, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You understand that the Christian faith and life, it is founded upon knowledge, right knowledge of God and who He is. 
Now, many, many view knowledge as being something, well, that's just, that works for the intellectual or someone who has a degree of some nature. No, that is not the case. The Christian life is a life of knowledge. Regardless of a back, our background or profession in life, we are to grow in knowledge of Christ. Why? Because all of the Christian life is Christ. He is the sum of what it is to be a Christian. The word knowledge here means the content of what is known or can be known. So we think about what can be known of Jesus. What can be known of Jesus? Well, only that which is revealed in the Word of God, right? It is the specific revelation of who He is. Now, do I know or do you know all there is to know about Jesus? As your pastor, I will confidently tell you, I do not know all there is to know about Jesus. Now, I know preachers like to act like they know everything. That just comes with the territory. But I'm not going to lie to you and act like I know everything. You come to me with a deep question, and I will always have an answer for you. It may be I don't know. And I'm content with that. Because I'm not God. I'm not infinite. But the reality is we are to continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. How much do we know of Jesus? Jesus once asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave these answers, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're prophet Elijah, and so on and so forth. He asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I read this quote by Mark Jones on that question, who do you say that I am? What a, and this is a great, great answer. He says, the right answer to this question is simple enough to save a child, and at the same time complex enough to keep theologians busy for all of eternity. That's how it is. Who is Christ? The answer to that question, it's simple enough that a child can be saved by faith, but it's deep enough that you and I would never, pl- never be able to p- extract all the depths of who he is. See, in this Christian journey, we first come to know Jesus at our conversion, but as we grow, we get to know him a whole lot more than that first day that we came to know him. You may know him quite a bit, but do you know all that there is to know about him. We will forever be growing in our knowledge of Jesus because he is eternally deep in his glory and his majesty. As Paul said of God in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Jesus is God. Now, we must never think that we have come to know enough about Jesus. There's so much more to know. I'll have you read with me. Just This will be fresh in your mind. Well, maybe not. It was several months ago when I preached this text. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23 for a moment. You remember Paul's prayer for the Ephesians? That might have been back in June or coming into July. Any of you remember that sermon? Didn't think so. I don't remember it either. <laughs> I'd have to go back and look at it. But here, here's Paul's prayer for them. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith of the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what his prayer is, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in what? The knowledge of him. 
Who is the Him? It is Christ. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is, that it, this one passage, though we may expound it and preach it, it really is inexhaustible in its full depth. Because it displays so much of who Christ is and what he's done for us. But that's Paul's prayer is for their knowledge of him, their knowledge of him, their enlightenment of who he is, knowledge of Christ, both intellectually and knowledge, but also intimately in knowing him in your personal walk with him. Paul summed it up this way also to the Colossians when he said of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. Do you want to know more? It really comes down to that. Do you want to grow? How can we grow in our knowledge of Jesus? Well, dig into your Bible. That's the main source. Dig into the Scriptures, friend. Your Bible is so precious. Don't ignore it. Don't don't put it off. You must feed on it and dig deeper into it. There are far too many Christians in this present age who have all they want of Christ. I'm going to heaven. I know Him. I really don't want to grow a whole lot more. I tell you when, you, when you resist to grow more in Christ, you miss out on so much more that you could experience in your Christian life here in this world. As Peter said to the Christians in 1 Peter, his first letter, chapter 2 and verse 2, he tells them, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. What is that pure spiritual milk? He's talking about the Word of God. I love this quote by George Whitfield, the evangelist of years past. He said, study to know him more and more. The more you know him, the more you will love him. Friend, the deeper you know Christ, the deeper your love will be for Christ. It only gets better and better and deeper and deeper. So are we hungry for more knowledge of Christ, or have we been content with where we are spiritually? We are to grow in grace. Lastly, number three, and this will be short, what is the glory of our spiritual growth, the glory of spiritual growth? Well, here's the glory of it. Growing Christians glorify Christ. They bring glory to him because he's worthy of that. Now, Peter comes to conclude this letter by reminding us of the ultimate reason for all that he has written especially our growing in grace. It is the reason that we grow in knowledge of Christ. It's the reason for all that we do in Christ. It is to glorify Him. Verse 18, he closes with this sentence, To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You understand that our Christian growth spreads the glory of Jesus. Can you think of how a growing Christian glorifies Jesus? Well, because a growing Christian increases into a deeper knowledge of Christ. A growing Christian has a more intimate walk with Christ. 
And by means of those things, a growing Christian will have a more outward demonstration of Christ's likeness to those around him. A mature, a mature Christian displays the work of God's grace in taking a lost, filthy sinner and transforming them into a holy saint of God. The whole of what a Christian is, understand, comes from God's work for us and in us. We claim nothing of ourselves. We all began our Christian life the same way. And we all grow the same way. Leonard Ravenhill was a good preacher of years ago also. He tells the story of a group of tourists that came to a village and they walked by an old man sitting by the fence and in a somewhat patronizing way, the tourists asked, were there any great men born in this village? And uh, this man replied, he said, nope, only babies. Only babies were born here. And, you know, you think about great men and women whom God has used to bring great glory to his name. They all started the same way, being born again into the family of God and began to grow and mature in their Christian life, growing deeper in love with Jesus, deeper in knowing him. And I believe this, that Jesus, he's worthy of the, the full extent of glory that our lives can bring. And if we want to bring him the fullest of glory that we can in our life, we need to be growing Christians. That's just what it boils down to. So, I ask all of us, are we growing Christians? Do you want to be a growing Christian? Are you seeking to grow as a Christian? I pray that would encourage us and, and also challenge us here tonight as, as we consider our own Christian life together.